everyone. Thank you so much for joining us today for episode one of season five of the Revise and Resubmit podcast. I'm Dr. Kim Bissell, the Southern Progress Endowed Professor in Magazine Journalism and the Associate Dean for Research in the College of Communication and Information Sciences at the University of Alabama. And I'm Dr. Annalisa Bowen, an assistant professor in the Department of Communication Studies, also at the University of Alabama, and we both work in the Institute for Communication and Information Research, or the ICIR, at UA. Annalisa, can you believe it? We are in season five. We've been talking to different communication scholars for two years. That's right. Two years. And if you haven't heard any of our previous episodes, hit pause and take it right back to any of those previous 56 episodes that have aired over the past two years. Well, okay, so keep listening now. Don't hit pause. But after this episode, definitely go back and meet some of the scholars that we have had on the podcast in the past four seasons. And, you know, I have to say, one of the things that I have found so rewarding about hosting this podcast is that we have not only learned about scholarship and, like, like useful things, like images, crisis communication, and civil discourse, and second screens, and health apps, and interpersonal communication, and even, like, self-reflection. But we (laughs) to know the humans behind the scholarship. And I tell you what. I'm not trying to say that like other fields don't have like really smart and passionate and cool and kind humans doing research, but the broad field of communication, like we are winning. We are winning. Hashtag we are winning for sure. And just to give you all a heads up about what's to come this season, we have a whole new lineup. In some cases, you're going to be hearing from new scholars here in the College of Communication and Information Sciences, but we're also going to be catching up with the previous guests that we talked to two years ago, and we're going to see what they've been up to since we talked to them last. It's going to be a fantastic season, so don't forget to tune in every Monday at 11 a.m. Central Standard Time when our new episodes drop. Again, that is Monday, 11 a.m. Okay, let's get to this episode, but first, Kim... I have a question. Okay. Um, this is something that we're going to be asking our guests this semester. So I think it's only fair to put you on the <laughs> no whatever comes first to your mind. If you wanted to be on a reality show, what would it be? Oh, my. Okay. So this is a question that I really don't have to think about at all. If I had to be on a reality show, I would definitely want it to be something like Amazing Race or a cooking or a baking show like The Great British Baking Show. I would not win at that because I'm just not that good. But Amazing Race, I think I might have a decent chance. And I've already got the strategy, the partner. I am ready. Amazing Race producers out there, connections, call me. Um, (laughs) But now I have to ask you, what about you? What reality show would you be good on? Okay, so Housewives all the way, <laughs> all day, every day. I could go on quite a while, but I won't. Um, I think they get bad. They have a bad reputation, but like these folks are doing a lot of things. They have businesses, charities. They're supportive. Sometimes they're supportive. <laughs> I would do good in this venue, especially in the interview chair. Okay, so on the spot, I don't have my tagline, but I've had moments where I'm like, ah, this would be my tagline. I'll think of them and I'll like randomly talk about them. <laughs> Stay tuned this season. Okay, so I know we're going to be asking our guests about their favorites, like TV shows, books, movies, but does this question actually have anything to do with today's podcast or are we just chattering? Well, I think we're always chattering, but 
it does tie into today's episode. Um, Our next guest describes his work as something that resembles the amazing race. He he gets clues where he finds one detail or fact, and then that's going to lead him to his next place to look at archives. And then that leads him to the next. So he never knows exactly what to expect or where he'll find it. But there's always a new discovery at the end. He's going to connect some of those dots for us in today's conversation. Absolutely. And I tell you what, after our conversation, be prepared to just like take a few minutes and process and think. I think that's that, that's needed. Um, and folks, welcome or welcome back. Thank you for joining us as we kick off season five with today's guest, Dr. A.J. Bauer, an assistant professor in the Department of Journalism and Creative Media. Welcome, A.J. Welcome, A.J. AJ, thank you so much for joining us today. We are so thrilled to have you kick off episode one of season five of Revise and Resubmit. Thank you. Thanks for thinking of me. Excited to be here. Absolutely. So one of the things that we've done in the past is we always start off with some rapid fire questions. So we're going to throw a few questions at you very, very quickly. Sounds good. All right, AJ, you're up. And... (laughs) Well, we already know your name, so I'm not going to ask you that. But where? Oh, wait, I'm sorry. That cut out. What did you say? I'm sorry. Where are you from? Oh, I'm from Flower Mound, Texas, which is a suburb just north of Dallas, um, kind of in between Dallas and Fort Worth. Okay. And how long have you been in uh, the great state of Alabama at the University of Alabama? I came to Alabama in January of 2021, uh, mid-pandemic, and I've been here ever since. And did you ever think um, that you would end up or come back to the South um, after kind of traveling northward for your education? Um, I did not. Um, I I, So I... um, (laughs) I grew, grew up in Texas and it was a very conservative county. It was um, Denton County when I was living there in the 90s uh, was one of the more conservative counties, one of the more like high populated Republican counties in the country. Um, our representative was Dick Army, uh, which is a funny name, but a serious guy. Um, and so I was uh, somewhat, um, we could say, alienated in that space um, and planned most of my young life about getting out of Texas and out of the South. Mm. Um, but I, I'm excited. I've been excited to come back to Alabama, although Alabama is quite different from Texas. Um, but um, it's giving me kind of a, a way of kind of reapproaching the South uh, from a more mature vantage and trying to like reconcile what about it feels alienating and what about it doesn't. Um, so it's been a good personal growth experience in addition to a good career move. Nice. Excellent. So, AJ, I have to ask, when Mm -hmm. you were growing up, did you say to your eight-year-old self, I'm going to be a professor? (laughs) Or can you tell us what the young AJ wanted to do when he... Of course. Yeah. So I... um, So... I'm a first-generation college student. My mom uh, was an RN. She got a uh, registered nursing uh, associate's degree. 
Uh, and my father went to call or went to high school and then went straight to work uh, for airlines. Um, so I grew up in a household that wasn't really, you know, I didn't know that professor was like a thing that we could do, you know, um, <laughs> right. I uh, was really always kind of drawn towards words and wordplay. Um, I fancied myself a poet when I was little, but the, or younger, and then um, started to realize that journalism felt better for me. Like, it, it, you know, itched kind of a political scratch that I had. I kind of saw journalists as like an accessible form of knowledge production. I kind of look at it in, in hindsight. Um, and so I wanted to be a journalist. I, I was a working journalist throughout college at the University of Texas. I was the editor of the uh, Daily Texan, which was a, a student body elected position. It still is there. Wow. Um, and so, although I ran unopposed, uh, but it, it nevertheless <laughs> had to run. Um, but um, in any event, so I was a journalist. I worked as a journalist for a few years. Um, and then uh, during the financial crisis of 2007, 2008, uh, I basically, you know, at the same time, there was a journalism jobs crisis. And so I had always kind of said to myself, my last year of college, I took a couple of American studies classes and kind of wished that I had majored in that. And so I said, well, if I ever go back to grad school, I'll go back for American studies. Um, so I got my master's uh, in American studies from New York University. Um, while I was there, um, a lot of the faculty were very generous with me and and kind of were curious why I was getting a master's degree instead of going for a PhD. Um, and so I had some really um, good mentorship uh, that encouraged me um, to think of myself as somebody who could do this kind of work. And so um, anyway, I even when I applied for the PhD program, uh, we got a five-year uh, letter contract at NYU. And I remember when I was signing that really anxious and nervous, like I'm, I'm committing to do something for five years. This is the longer, longest I've done anything in my life, right? <laughs> um, but anyway, I've, I'm very fortunate to have um, had some good mentorship um, to, to put me into this kind of position. Awesome. Okay, so that, that leads us into a great way to ask, can you give us an elevator pitch on your scholarship? Sure. So um, I am... Uh, interdisciplinary scholar. Again, my degrees in American studies. And so um, I see myself as uh, working on cultivating an interdisciplinary subfield, um, looking at the study of right-wing media uh, and conservative news. Um, I specialize in the United States, obviously, but I think ideally the subfield is something that straddles borders, that is going to be more of a global uh, conversation. Um, and so all of my work is geared toward that end. A lot of my publications are history because my dissertation um, uh, was an archival history project. Um, mm -hmm. But my master's thesis was actually a, a multi-sided ethnography of the Tea Party movement back in 2010. Wow. Um, so I do a little bit of ethnography. I do a little bit of interview-based research. I do a little bit of um, archival history or a lot of archival history. Um, and so I'm kind of firing on multiple different cylinders, trying to um, bridge conversations between a series of fields, mostly political science, journalism studies, cultural studies and history, um, trying to get everybody to, to talk to one another, basically, and build around this object of analysis of, of right wing media. OK, so I have to ask, how did you get started doing this research? It, I mean, it's just fascinating. Yeah, so. Um, when I went to grad school in 2009 uh, to get a master's degree at NYU, I was mostly not really interested in, in right-wing media or, or conservatism. I had kind of come from that. I grew up uh, my, you know, listening to 
Rush Limbaugh. Uh, my mom was a ditto head. Uh, my dad was also conservative, but like less invested in any particular media figure. Um, so I grew up in a really conservative household. I grew up conservative myself. Um, I kind of, uh, you know, grew more more to the left, uh, particularly with the invasion invasion of Iraq, um, and you know, just kind of my own reading and things in college. And um, so, in two thousand and nine, I thought I wanted to go back to school to learn about nationalism. Um, I was really curious about how people come to identify with one another, uh, be willing to die for you know causes. Not long after the Iraq, or like in the middle of the Iraq War, actually, in some ways. And so um, anyway, that was my focus. And while I was doing my research, I realized that the Tea Party movement was going at this time. It started in 2009 when I started grad school, um, shortly after the election of Barack Obama in 2008. Uh, so the summer of 2010, I was kind of getting itchy. I was tired of reading books. I wanted to get out into the field and interview people again. The journalist in me was getting itchy. And so mm -hmm. um, I decided what better way to study nationalism than this movement, the Tea Party movement that was, you know, making all these claims about national belonging, making all these claims about the Constitution, uh, patriotism, etc. And so from there, I, I got really interested in the in the Tea Party movement. Um, I started to realize that um, doing my research into conservatism was helping me process some kind of like, um, you know, unprocessed trauma of growing up uh, within conservatism. Um, and so uh, it kind of stuck. And from there, after the Tea Party thing, uh, I got really burned out with interview as a method, mostly because um, some of my Tea Party informants uh, being skeptical of academia, mm -hmm. uh, being skeptical of me coming from New York, even though one of my sites was in Texas, where I was from, um, a lot of them said that they would consent to be interviewed only if they could interview me afterwards. Wow. Um, and I said, oh, yeah, that's fine. But as long as I can record both of the interviews and they largely agreed to that. And so the interviews that I would conduct with these Tea Party folks would my part would be about an hour and a half. But then we would talk for hours. I mean, I remember with one person in particular, we like shut down the restaurant that we were at, like until closing, basically. Um, so hour long interviews, hours long interviews. Um, and it was really exhausting because a lot of those interviews were forcing me to like talk about my past, talk about my political beliefs, like defend my political beliefs. And it ended up being a really useful method. I learned a lot about Tea Partiers based upon the questions that they were asking me um, and their concerns and their responses to my responses. Um, but it was just really time consuming and exhausting. And so I switched gears. I had done history uh, as a one of my majors in undergrad, I switched back to historical methods, partly because the archives can't talk at you. <laughs> like they're dead. And so you're not all dead, but many of them are dead. And so you're just like reading what they thought. Like it, it's uh, for an introvert like me, it's a little bit uh, of a more palatable or, or sustainable method. Um, so that's where I, how I ended up doing more historical work. Okay. So I have a follow-up question. Yes. I, think, I think often we think about like, I'm getting a degree in X or Y or Z, but we also hear about the importance of being interdisciplinary. And then like life is just a lot interdisciplinary anyway. Did right. you, did you learn any, um, or is there any overlap in either the strategies or application of the, of the research that you've done it like especially in the field and then like working to get these different academic 
units or academic identities to talk to each other? Yeah. So, um, you know, I, I feel really fortunate to have come from the program I did at NYU, which is a really kind of cutting edge space of developing interdisciplinarity uh, and transdisciplinarity. Um, and so it's kind of the air I breathe. I, I don't um, I don't think about it. I think that is something that I just kind of have to do. Right. It's not something that I um, um, I need to theorize it or like my own approach to it a bit more, I think. But I think one thing that really helped prepare me for it actually was journalism, mm. uh, which journalism, you know, prepares you to be kind of a generalist. Like you get dropped into, you know, myriad situations and you kind of have to roll with it and become an expert in a day or an hour or whatever. Um, yep. And so being able to, uh, you know, research multiple different things and, and be kind of cognizant in all of them uh, has helped me in my interdisciplinary work because uh, part of the, you know, task of interdisciplinarity is reading across fields, right? So being able to read, you know, historical work, political science work, um, um, journalism studies work, um, many of which are kind of siloed, right? They're, they're really only reading and talking to themselves or to their, their own small group of other scholars. Um, and, and kind of the way I think of interdisciplinarity is kind of the role of bees, right? So bees go around, they're doing their own thing, like trying to like build a get, you know, get, uh, uh, hot or make honey or things like that for their queen and things like that. But part of what they're doing, right, is they're cross pollinating. And so they're going around and they're like landing on one flower and then another one, et cetera. And I think about interdisciplinary as a, as fundamentally a role of translation and, and um, cross pollination. So um, I'm trying to make historical or historiographical research legible in journalism studies. I'm trying to make journalism studies legible in political science and political communication. Now, there's already some overlaps in some of those fields, obviously, but um, some of my work, my editing work mostly is revolving around this. So, for example, a few years ago, uh, my colleague uh, Anthony Nadler and I um, uh, had a um, special issue of the journal Misinformation Review, which is typically kind of a social science-y kind of quantitative, mostly methods journal uh, about mis and disinformation. Um, and we pitched uh, a history project, right? Where it's like, all right, we're only going to invite people who do historical methods. And part of the goal for that was the people who tend to read this journal are not necessarily reading uh, historiography, right? That it's not something they need to read for their work to stay legible in their own field. And so part of what we were doing with uh, inviting historians to contribute and trying to get them into that conversation is exactly this kind of blending and cross-pollination work. It doesn't mean that all social scientists are gonna be historians, but it means that now they're in conversation with historians and historians was in conversation with social scientists to try to develop a more robust and, and contextualized understanding of the, the phenomenon, in this case, disinformation. Wow. Um, this is, I mean, what you do just sounds very, very intriguing. And I feel like we need to be, you know, putting you up on billboards and <laughs> you got to check this story out. Um, so I think it's a little bit of a shift in gears, but not too, too much. Mm -hmm. I know that you've got a book making the liberal media, mm -hmm. criticisms and the rise of the new right. Can you tell us as much as you can um, sort of where you got? I'm going to do a book and then if you can without giving it all away kind of tell us what we can expect to find when we read it mm -hmm. yeah absolutely so um, that book is currently in process it's uh, based on my dissertation which was called um, make oh, wait, before fair and balance is what that was titled um, 
So the the book is basically a history of an idea. It's the history of the idea of liberal media bias, right? So mm -hmm. I'm not weighing in as to whether or not the media is biased one way or the other. I think a lot of those debates actually um, don't do anything. They kind of just circulate, you know, like conservatives are going to think that the New York Times is liberal. Uh, a lot of lefties that I know read the Times and are mad at it because they think it's conservative <laughs> and reactionary, which again, it, it is in various ways, right? So like... Um, that debate, though, uh, you know, historians of ideas um, uh, tell us, right, those sorts of debates create discourses that have real effects in the world, right? And so part of what my project is doing is looking at where does the belief in the liberal media bias come from? Um, and so looking at various archives, combining different archives together, I kept looking back deeper and deeper into the 20th century history to say, like, where does this start? And what I found is in the 1940s, um, the kind of prevailing conventional wisdom, right? The conventional wisdom today is that the media is biased towards liberals. If I ask my students, hey, what is the media biased towards? Even the liberal ones would be like, yeah, it's biased towards liberalism, right? And so um, I kept going back. And in the 1940s, actually, there was a, a discourse that the media was biased towards conservatism, actually. Um, this comes out of the New Deal, where a lot of the newspapers at the time were opposed to Franklin Roosevelt, opposed to uh, the New Deal and the various kind of reorganization, Keynesian reorganization of the, the economy. Um, and so there was a general uh, sense that uh, newspapers were biased towards conservatism, uh, that the radio was still a space where liberals could have a voice. Um, you remember the kind of fireside chats of Franklin Roosevelt, yeah. right? Uh, uh, radio positioned itself early on as sympathetic to the New Deal, um, partly because it didn't want to get regulated quite as much, right? Um, and so um, that was going on in the 1940s, but in the 40s, this is the kind of beginnings of the Cold War, the beginnings of the what would become the Second Red Scare and McCarthyism by the early 1950s. Um, you started to see uh, people affiliated with the popular front. So liberals who uh, would nevertheless go to meetings with communists and socialists and all sorts, right? This is a time period in the United States where uh, there was kind of a coalitional left liberal uh, culture. Um, a lot of liberals, uh, as well as actual communists and socialists, uh, were increasingly getting fired and kicked out of uh, the radio, uh, academia, other, other uh, you know, areas of knowledge production. And so, um, interestingly, um, in the 1940s, you start to see a lot of liberals getting kicked out of the radio, which, again, extends that criticism of the media being about conservatism from the print to the radio medium. Now, interestingly, there were a lot of, uh, uh, like I would call them like um, anti-Stalinist uh, uh, liberals or socialists um, who in the 1940s were writing for left anti-Stalinist publications that were really crucial in developing a discourse around right-wing media, the media being right-wing, newspapers being biased, radio being biased. Um, by the early 1940s, some of those figures literally uh, merged to the right in their own political beliefs. And so you see them actually migrating in terms of publications from uh, outlets like um, the New Leader, um, which was a kind of left uh, anti-Stalinist publication to publications like Plain Talk, which was a little bit more right wing. Um, and then by the mid 1950s, these are literally editors and writers for the National Review, which is William F. Buckley's famous um, uh, uh, conservative uh, uh, journal of ideas uh, starting in 1955. So part of what I'm getting at here is that 
historically people or historians have considered liberal media criticism as kind of something that the right does to kind of uh, work the refs, right? Like as a mm -hmm. political strategy, as something that is kind of craven and opportunistic. But what I find actually is that looking back to the very beginnings of the modern conservative movement in the late 1940s and early 1950s, you see uh, a critique of the media as embedded in conversations about why conservatism matters, why conservative ideas are the right ideas and things like that. So the bigger overall project of the book is tracking the incorporation of media criticism into the modern conservative movement throughout the 20th century. But part of the argument is that, um, there's, I think there are kind of two main arguments, right? One is that um, media criticism is embedded in conservative identity um, and the identification as conservative from the very beginning of the movement, like from the early 1950s, even before John Birch Society, even before William F. Buckley, conservatives identified themselves as conservative in part because of their critical disposition toward the press. So that's one argument. The other argument is this isn't just a, a project of modern conservative movement. So oftentimes this is uh, theorized in kind of a conspiratorial way, right? That like William F. Buckley and his buddies get together. They, they're going to kind of uh, create conservatism in the United States. Um, uh, the Goldwater campaign implodes or doesn't do very well in 1964, but then they conspire, right? These like inter-party activists conspire to make the conservative movement robust and strong, and they succeed by 1980 with Ronald Reagan getting elected, right? Um, what I'm arguing is that Conservative, the, the idea of the liberal media was certainly very crucially shaped by those actors, but it was also shaped by progressive liberals, act, uh, academics who took on the idea of media bias, structural media bias, developed that idea, and then later who took the idea of liberal media bias and then tried to test it as a hypothesis, right? So nowadays you have academics who are not conservative, not necessarily liberal, who go and they test like, well, you know, I'm going to do a content analysis, right? Is the New York Times biased towards the left or liberal in order to prove whether or not it exists, liberal bias exists or not? Part of what I'm arguing is that itself continues and perpetuates and produces the notion of the liberal media as a trope and as an idea that has agential worth in the world, right? That helps conservatives identify with conservatism. Um, so it's trying to paint the idea of liberal media as kind of a discourse that is not unique or just merely rhetorical within the conservative movement, but is something that has a bigger function in structuring our ideas about media. Uh, yeah. Okay. So <laughs> we're both kind of stunned. Like, wow. Yeah. I, right. Um, okay. So I have, I have a question for you. Sure. You were not alive in the 1950s. Correct. Um, <laughs> so <laughs> and you, and you have talked about doing historical work and you've talked about archives. Like, do, do you just, do, do you, sit in front of a computer and say like google me this like so wh what is archival work and what is historical research what is that like process yeah so i wish that it was just like going to like a boolean search and entering a term and then mere you know everything comes up that would be fantastic and like maybe eventually you know a hundred years from now when i don't know we've got the supercomputing or something and everything is scanned, we can do that. But digitization is a very slow and painstaking process and is very uneven. So some archives are digital and that's wonderful. Um, archive.org is a great repository for a lot of these. Um, shout out to Ernie Lazar, who's been doing FOIA requests of a lot of right-wing figures dating all the way back to the 50s and 60s for decades and has posted all of those the results of those FOIA requests 
on archive.org and it's a treasure trove of like literally hundreds of thousands of pages of documents uh, that includes like FBI surveillance of several left and right or several dozen left and right activists. So anyway, that's one helpful source. But a lot of this really requires going and figuring out, you know, okay, who are the the historical actors that I'm interested in? Um, mm -hmm. Are they dead? If they're dead, do they have archives somewhere? Um, if they have archives somewhere, do you have to get approval from the family in order to access those, right? Um, once you get approval, you get everything going, right? Getting money to go travel physically in person to these sites. And then you get, you know, these, you know, uh, you know, one foot linear boxes, right? That you just have to literally go page by page and see what's in them. And archivists are amazing like they're the best people and they do these great um, guides that try to tell you like here's what's going to generally be in these folders um, but even they're you know they can't tell you everything that's in them right and so it's a little bit kind of like a sleuthing game um, <laughs> and so my project because again there isn't like an archive that you say I want to learn about you know conservatism let's go to the conservatism archive right it's scattered throughout the country and around the world, um, these archives. And so it literally requires going to dozens of different locations, seeing what's in various boxes, um, seeing my favorite part and like the real aha moments or when you start to see archives speaking to one another, right? So I have a piece that came out last year um, called um, uh, Propaganda in the Guise of News, which is this uh, 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 uncovering of the hidden work of Fulton Lewis Jr., this conservative uh, radio broadcaster, who was kind of a subject of controversy around the time that the Federal Communications Commission uh, passed its uh, fairness doctrine in the late 1940s. And it, there's a lot of subtext in those hearings that you can't see if you go, which I did, to the Federal Communication Commission archives uh, at NARA um, 2 in um, College Park, Maryland, you can dig through like literally thousands of pages of these like uh, transcripts of, of people's testimony before the Federal Communications Commission. And they would just like loosely mention Fulton Lewis Jr. here and there. And so what I did is I Googled him and found out that he has archives in Syrac at Syracuse University. And so then I made a few archive trips there and I literally found um, documentation of him engaging in this kind of conflict that was coming up in the FCC archives, but all the backstory to that. Wow. Um, and, and ended up finding out these kind of interesting ways that that uh, fight, he was having a fight with the consumer cooperatives movement. They kept uh, demanding equal time with one another over the radio and airwaves, how that conflict actually helped shape the emergence of the Fairness Doctrine, which was the kind of main broadcast uh, policy, uh, content oriented policy for the mid 20th century. Um, so again, it's, it's kind of like... Um, uh, playing detective work um, and like finding a puzzle, but that puzzle has been, uh, you know, uh, privatized, split into multiple random <laughs> folders and then scattered around the country. And then nobody's telling you you need what the puzzle looks like. You just have to kind of find it your way as you figure out where these archives are. Like, I feel like this is going to, this, this should be amazing race. Yeah, exactly. Uh, yes. <laughs> I would watch that. I would watch that. <laughs> It would be really boring, like, because, like, it's literally, like, I, I did a, um, uh, one of my archival sites is at BYU in Provo, Utah, and their archive, fortunately, is open from, like, 8 a.m. until 9 or 8 p.m. or something. It's, like, a 12-hour thing. There's, like, an hour for devotion in the middle because it's a Mormon place, so they have a little devotion in the middle of the day. But other than that, it's, like, I would go and work you know, 10 hours a day, uh, hunched over a table, literally <laughs> taking photos of documents, right? It's not exactly, you know, 
good reality television. <laughs> I don't know, though. I mean, I think yeah. cool. we, we can put our heads together and, and, and pitch an idea here. Yeah. yeah. Um, so we're going to shift gears on you just a little bit. Sure. When you think about your professional career, what are you most proud of? Hmm. Um, that's a good and hard question. And, uh, as my therapist would say, Hmm, um, I, uh, I don't, I, I have a hard time with praise and pride. Generally speaking, I think I'm still like in the midst of things, but I think that the work that gives me the most satisfaction, um, other than those like rare archival finds, right. Where you're like, uh, looking at an archive and you see them literally conversating about something that you've speculated might be the case, but you, mm -hmm. you know, it's validated. Right. Um, I think my, what I'm most proud of is the kind of interdisciplinary work, the bringing people together. So even though it doesn't count as much for tenure and these sorts of things, like my editing work. So I've edited a book with my colleague, uh, Tony, um, called news on the right, which brought together a lot of figures to think about conservative media uh, I edited that misinformation review special issue to give voice to historians within dis and misinformation. I'm currently working on another uh, volume um, that's really in the early stages um, that's trying to help right-wing studies scholars uh, theorize and think through the unique problems of the field. So like, what are the challenges that are faced by folks who study such a uh, politically fraught subject? Um, and I think that those are the projects that feel the most fulfilling to me, partly because it's uh, finding a lot of junior scholars and senior scholars, putting them into conversation with one another. It's kind of that field development, field cultivation work that I was talking about. Mm -hmm. um, because to me, um, my own work is interesting to me and I hope it's interesting to other people, but putting people into conversation, helping platform people who don't have a voice in a certain field, um, I think that's doing bigger, longer term work that will outlive me in a way that my own work will die with me more or less. <laughs> That's yeah. a great answer though. And I mean, I totally respect and understand that it is hard to kind of talk about our biggest accomplishments, but, but that was a great answer. Thank you, AJ. Yeah, thanks. All right. Wrapping up, I'm going to ask you a question. Kim's going to ask you a question. Don't think too hard. Whatever first comes to mind. <laughs> Sure. All right. What is your, oh gosh, what is your favorite TV show of all time? Go. Oh, that's hard. Um, <laughs> of all time. I, I was a big time. MASH fan growing up. Oh, like good um, I like trash reality TV too, though. Like, um, but no, I'm honestly, actually the, the best show, the, kind of the best high quality show I would say is Succession which I'm into because mm. it's kind of like a veiled critique of uh, the Murdoch clan, but it's also just like excellent and funny and dark. Yes. Yes, yes, yes. What book is on your nightstand right now? Um, the book that's on my nightstand right now, my dear friend Stephen recently gifted me. Uh, it's a, I don't forget the title of it, but it's uh, Werner Herzog, who's a, a German, uh, you know, new German film, not new, but like uh, new filmmaker, uh, German filmmaker, um, he has like this weird novel that he wrote about some Japanese guy that I think he met once or wanted to meet once. And I haven't read it yet because I'm actually low key really bad at reading fiction, um, <laughs> but I'm working on it. And so it's a novel and I haven't cracked it yet, but uh, Herzog is great. I recommend him. 
And what's a movie that we all need to go see right now or stream? Stream or go see right now. The see, the movie I saw most recently was Nope, which was great. Um, I don't think everybody needs to see it, but I think that it's really good and entertaining. Um, I think a movie that everybody ought to see, and I don't know where it's streaming right now, is um, The Act of Killing, um, mm. which is this incredible documentary film by Josh Oppenheimer, where he um, spends a long period of time in Indonesia, and he's trying to interview uh, victims of a, a genocide that took place, an anti-communist kind of genocide that took place there. Um, but ends up um, getting some of the killers uh, because there's never been any truth and reconciliation commission gets some of the killers to reenact the killings that they committed in these kind of very bizarre cinematic spectacles. Um, and it's a deeply unsettling film, but I think that it really forces you to meditate on a lot of really difficult, but important questions about humanity. Mm. All right, last question is, if you had to commit to eating only one thing for the rest of your life, what would that be? Oh, wow. <laughs> like, is it just like, like, is it like a meal or what are you, you eating? Can, we'll give you some latitude there. <laughs> um, it, it would probably be like Mediterranean, like Greek Cypriot food, right? <laughs> so I'm talking about like gyros, maybe lemon potatoes, that sort of thing. Or uh, if I'm being honest, it's probably Mexican food. <laughs> it's hard though, because between those two, it's very difficult. But if like, I was in Mexico City this summer and I ate some uh, Al Pastor tacos that like, if I just ate that the rest of my life, I'd probably be fine. It'd be fine. <laughs> yeah. I can appreciate that. <laughs> Absolutely. AJ, it has been so much fun catching up with you today Likewise. i want to thank you um, for making time in your day to chat with us we're gonna have a lot of information about you about the upcoming book in our show notes for all of our listeners so thank you so much awesome i appreciate it thank you all have a good day you too Bye. aj take care <laughs>